Hello everybody, it's good to see you. Welcome to another episode of Subject Matter. As always, I'm your host, Ben Bradbury, and we've got a really interesting guest for you today, a man by the name of Brian Rowland. Brian is a social entrepreneur and he's the founder of Abenity, a six times Inc. 5000 company that's powering corporate perks for top brands like US Bank and MasterCard. They've been remote working since 2006, so they were doing this before it was cool, and that's something we're going to dig into in a lot of detail later, how to approach remote work. And while Abenity provides millions of subscribers with extreme discounts, they also have a social mission to fight extreme poverty with every program they deliver. And they've recently exceeded $1 million in total giving. And Brian actually hired a CEO to and stepped back to accelerate the growth of this fully remote team. So it's a really interesting structure. Brian's based out of Scottsdale, Arizona with his family and enjoys roasting coffee, flying drones, and helping impact-driven entrepreneurs establish social missions. To get you guys excited for the episode, I thought I'd share three quotes that Brian shares in this interview that really stuck out to me. The first, I guarantee you we are more profitable because of our social mission. We get into the dynamics of how Abenity's social mission, having that higher purpose, is actually a creative or rather competitive advantage for their business. The second quote, I love this one. He said, we ask prospective hires to prioritize their personal life over their work life. We have no jurisdiction over your home life. So if you're going to be successful for us, you have to be successful for you first. This one might sound a little bit counterintuitive, but when Brian hires people at Abenity, he always makes sure that they have their personal ducks in a row before they consider professional success. And it's very important to understand why that is. And the third quote, he says, email should be treated like the mailbox in front of our house. Instead, we treat email like it's the news, watching the ticker to see if anything interesting comes up. There is a right way to use email and there is a wrong way to use email with your team. And spoiler alert, you shouldn't be using email internally for communications. It has a totally different purpose and can actually really create friction with building effective teams if you don't do this. So this this is a really interesting interview. I learned a ton. Brian had a lot of fun as well, and I hope you enjoy. It's packed with insights. Let me know what you think. I'm very curious. Drop a comment down below if, if you're on YouTube, or you can reach me directly on Twitter. My handle's at Ben Bradbury underscore. Without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Brian Rowland. Brian, welcome to Subject Matter. It's great to have you here. Thanks. Good to see you today. So you've got a really interesting social mission with Abenity, and we talked about this before we hit record, and I think this is going to be a big part of our conversation today. Maybe you could start by giving everyone at home a little primer on how Abenity's social mission started. In 2006, I had a really successful sales job selling cell phones, and uh, that success led me to found this company that we're doing today. And the biggest challenge with my previous success selling the cell phones was really that why question. Why am I doing this? Why am I, why am I running so hard? Why am I pouring so much energy into this? Why am I making more money 
than I need at that point in my life, not married and without kids. So when we started our new company, we pursued more meaning in our work and we set up a social mission so that for every input into the business, there was an output to our cause. And over the last 11 years, that's provided over a million dollars of direct support for extreme poverty through a group called World Vision. Let's take a step back for a second, because I think seeing a million dollars as a number straight away is, it's impressive, but I'd also be interested in knowing how you got to that point. So what were the first steps that you took that enabled you to make this social mission a big part of what you were doing at Abenity? The first step for us, it was really saying, hey, what do we want to stand for? And this is when you're setting up your mission, vision, values, We had values that aligned with building a team and building a culture around our values. Um, We had a vision for our industry, for how our product changed our industry, but our mission was not within our industry. Um, In fact, it took us a long time to craft a mission statement that we really related to. and And it turned out that the disconnect for us is why is this mission statement so hard is because we were very interested in fighting for something with our platform outside of ourselves, outside of our brand, outside of our products and services. Our mission statement really was shaped around this idea of fighting extreme poverty with the success of our platform. And and we crafted that into our social mission. We really took steps from there to say, okay, well, we want this to be a part of our DNA and we don't want to become a nonprofit. We don't want to be the ones doing the work. We want to be equipping great nonprofits who are already out there, equipping them to do their work. And we developed uh, essentially a formula on the front end that said hey, for, for every input that we get into the business, then this output goes towards our cause. With that in place, we can work as hard as we can work on our product, uh, making our services great, connecting with our customers, influencing our industry and know that the more aggressive we are and successful we are in our space, the greater our support will be for our cause um, in a way that just infinitely scales. And so we we got started by simply saying we're going to give 15% of our net profit towards extreme poverty. And that became a really powerful decision. I had the opportunity to create an impact report at the end of last year it's on our abenity.com website right in the in the top and you can see over the years where we've applied that million dollars of support and how it breaks down and really it became something we just incrementally did along the way it was never one big huge check we just kept giving a little bit every year and over the period of 11 years it grew to a number that we set in 2009 is our goal that at the time we had no idea how we would achieve. Yeah, a little goes a long way. And I want to zoom in on the language that you used a minute ago. I think it's very indicative of how this social mission can be a competitive advantage for the company. So you said that our team is able to be much more aggressive in pursuing our goals. And business 
as a concept, when you start a business, you are essentially deciding to go to war for a cause. You have your generals in the boardroom, you're planning strategy, you're deploying your employees in service of things. There's a lot of parallels to the battlefield. And that can be negative if you leave that aggression to be unchecked. In your case, though, you have this higher purpose. You have this North Star of saying, well, if we're giving away 15% of our net profits in service of this higher cause, then that's the reason for our team to pour more gas on the fire, to keep pushing ourselves that much further. And so the really interesting thing here is that I would wager that the social mission that you have actually doesn't detract from the size of the business that Abenity is creating. If anything, it helps you bake a bigger pie because the employees that you have in the team, they're all motivated to realize that we're not just getting out of bed to make money today. We're going into business to help make the world a better place by lifting these people out of extreme poverty. A lot of people, when I kind of talk to them and they're like, you know, what's that first step we need to take? I was like, well, you know, really the whole idea is to use your profits to fund something else. And they're like, oh man, you, okay. So I have to give away my profit. <laughs> and it's kind of like a, a stopper for the showstopper for them. They're like, I don't want to, I don't want to give up my profits. <laughs> and I can guarantee you that we are more profitable than we ever would have been without our social mission because of the impact that it's had internally on our team, our motivation, our health as a culture, and externally on our industry and in our space. Early on, the social mission was just meant to give me meaningful work because five years into the marketplace out of college, I realized that work is hard and you're going to, you're just going to take punches all the time. And at some point you're like, why am I taking all these punches? There's, I don't need to be doing this. And just because I was starting my own company didn't mean that that reality was going to change. And I really wanted to be able to take a punch and know that I was taking a punch in support of something bigger. I got a really cool call a month ago that said, we're excited to tell you that a hundred of the kids you're sponsoring in this rural community, their village, and we've been there 20 plus years, their village has graduated out of our economic development efforts and they are self-sustaining now. And so we as World Vision are leaving. That means you won't be sponsoring those kids anymore. We're going to go find other kids that need us. And so it's a really happy and kind of hard thing at the same time to say goodbye. But Extreme poverty is dissipating and on track to end um, within the next decade or two. There's 500 to 750 million people that are stuck in that right now. And so for us, as, as this is my why, why I'm taking punches, well, I was excited to see that as we started hiring people, and we're a fully remote team, so we picked people based on their competency, um, not their geography. And I was really excited to see as we started sharing what we were doing with our social mission internally, it gave them meaningful work. And then when multiple people have the same kind of purpose at work, well, it creates this shared purpose. And that shapes into this kind of cultural alignment. A recipe for cultural alignment 
is invaluable. That is a very difficult thing for you as a company to do, especially in the marketplace. And so having this aligned culture um, became a really neat behind the curtain strategic advantage that we had where we're able to do a lot with a little because we just have really motivated, hardworking, great people that love what we're doing. And that shaped into a community. And about the time we recognized this, it was 2014, we said, hey, you know, why aren't we telling our customers about our social mission? Why aren't we telling our employee? Uh, why are we just kind of keeping it inside? And, you know, for me and Mark, my brother, who's my business partner, it was kind of like, well, you know, we don't want to be like bragging about our giving. We don't want people to think we're using our our social mission as kind of a marketing strategy we realized was, you know, the business is a separate entity. It's not us personally. Both Mark and I have our personal interests that we give to. That's private. We don't, we, we kind of keep that to ourselves. And however, the business, what the business stands for, the impact could go much farther by being more open and public about it. So in 2014, we really started including our social mission in, in our videos, in our sales presentations, in our brochures, just everywhere. We wanted people to know we labeled our corporate perks business perks with purpose. Today, we, we say perks are about people and our, our mission statement focuses around whether you're an orphan in the developing world or an employee at a Fortune 500 company. We want you to know that you're valuable, what you do matters, and you can make a difference. Like this common humanity, um, this equal value that we have as humanity is at the core of our, our social mission and what we're fighting for. And as we went public with that, we were blown away by the curiosity that it sparked inside of people. And what we found was that our social mission, when you line us up in our industry and in our space, our social mission created a competitive advantage for us. And clients, we started asking, you know, why clients, why'd you choose us? Why, how'd you find us? Why'd you choose us? It was never the sole reason, oh, we chose you only because of your social mission. But it was like, well, we like that you guys do this, this, and your social mission really aligns with what we stand for. And so that social mission just always kind of pushed people over the top and and led them to work with us. And that competitive advantage by far has made us more profitable than we ever would have been on our own trying to do it with without a clearly stated mission statement. Now, the impact of the social mission, it's worth pointing out, is very specific to the structure of your business, which is a for-profit enterprise. So the fact that you're for-profit and you can intentionally funnel funds into the social mission is what makes this relationship powerful. Could you share why you think it's important for ambitious people, which our listeners are, to consider the type of company they're working for and the merits of working at a for-profit enterprise versus a non-for-profit as well, and how that would affect their career progression? You have really great entrepreneurs at the foundation of every successful business and every successful non-profit organization. I think for the most part, when you just kind of look at it and apply common sense, you're like, well, I want to use my ambition and my entrepreneurial motivations to drive change, to support a cause, to make something better. And as a result of that, you start a nonprofit supporting whatever cause it is that you want to start. And you go down the nonprofit road. 
the issue with that structure for a great entrepreneur is um, in the early days, it has a transactional feel like you get this support and you're able to apply it in this way towards your cause. And you have this kind of transactional relationship that feels really good. However, like every entity that you create as it grows and scales and the infrastructure rises and gets more complex, you as the entrepreneur are no longer able to be in that kind of transactional world where you're getting these hits of excitement every single time that um, you're involved in that transactional process and you get further away from that transactional process. And unfortunately, as the founder entrepreneur in the nonprofit space, you end up working into a position where you're just you're just trying to continue to raise the amount of support you need to support your infrastructure so your infrastructure can accomplish the goals of the organization. I would encourage a lot of people that have this kind of generous heart they're at the starting place it's like well consider how can how can you start something in the marketplace that fuels the cause that you're passionate about and then um, instead of starting a nonprofit start it as a social enterprise as a for-profit. And then if you're not an entrepreneur and you're interested in how can my work on a day-to-day basis go towards something bigger than myself, well then think about how you either A, create a social mission of your own. It's this intentional step to make a difference as kind of your, your mission, but you have to define it. You have to make a plan for it. When you're working for somebody else, there's plenty of opportunities to do that, you also get to choose who you work for. And so find a company that stands for something that is in line with what you really care about. And for you to be a healthy employee long-term, for you to be a healthy contributor to society and the marketplace long-term, you really need to have something that you're fighting for that's outside of yourself out and outside of the company and the brand and the products and services you're supporting. Because all those things are going to disappoint you. They're going to let you down. They're not always going to be worth fighting for. And so having a cause outside of yourself that's way bigger is always going to be worth fighting for. Now, one of the the other aspects of the shared social mission, and this is the other big topic that I'd love to talk about today, is how this impacted the remote work structure that Abenity has. Because you guys have been remote working you well to put it uh, bluntly you were doing it before it was cool you've been remote working yeah. since 2006 and so how did this shared social mission that you've had how did that impact your company as a remote first organization we very much were quiet about our remote work format our distributed team up until about that same, maybe around 2015, 2016, we started, you know, we had a lot of success. We had a lot of great customers, name brand customers, and we were more confident. Like, ah, this is the way we do work. It works. We've got a great track record. But we didn't do that for the first seven years of the business. We we were really uh, kind of kept that behind the scenes because we didn't want to give people any reason to doubt our ability because of our geography or <laughs> lack of geography. <laughs> so that was a really nice road to kind of travel. As I'm talking to people about remote work, you know, there's a bunch of components that break down into a formula, I think are really important. I think the first one is the foundation of remote work is really built on trust and respect. 
you can have less trust and less respect for someone working directly in your office because you're there to physically oversee them most of the time. And that works out great. You don't get to a place where you really, if you're in a distributed environment, you don't have the ability to oversee them. And so you you really need that trust and respect. The other mentality shift you have to have for remote work, which all of us have to have now in this new day, is that instead of managing activity, you manage output. What I mean by that is when you're expecting people to clock in by 8.30 and clock out at 5 with a lunch break in between, you're really just measuring activity. I know there's performance reviews and stuff like that that measure their output, but at the end of the day, you're telling them, hey, as long as you show up on time and leave on time, you checked your boxes and that's good. And that's a really inefficient way to manage someone from a productivity standpoint. It's We really take the approach where we're like, we don't care how you work, when you work, as long as you get your work done. And some people's work requires them to get it done during typical business hours, requires them to collaborate with people during common hours. And so that's a part of their job is they have to do that. But we let them work however they want to. The third piece that I think is really, really, really important just sounds crazy when you say it. But it'd be like if I came to you, Ben, and I said, hey, Ben, in order for you to work for us, I just need one thing from you one real big thing. Mm -hmm. I need you to be able to prioritize your personal life over your work life for me. Is that going to work for you? And you're going to be like, sorry, I'm sorry. It sounded like you just said you wanted me to be more important (laughs) than you. Is that, that's that's exactly what what I'm thinking. Is that what I heard? Like, what do you, what? (laughs) It was like, (laughs) um, what do you got in that coffee cup there? Like, no, it was like, yeah, that's exactly right. Because you are operating outside of my jurisdiction. You're not in my office. You're operating in your own jurisdiction. You're operating in your own home, in your own environment. You don't have any of my controls um, around you. So if you're going to be successful for me, you have to be successful for yourself. You have to manage yourself well. That means if you have kids, you you need to get to the bus stop on time. Um, you need to get your kids out the door on time in the mornings, because if you don't, then that trickles over and affects your output for me. And so this idea that you need to be able to prioritize your personal life above your work life is really this flipped mentality that everyone has to buy into because I can't micromanage you from a distance. It won't work even if I try. This is so interesting. And I love how what you've just shared of prioritizing your personal life first links to this idea of managing from output first and activity second. Because in order to have effective output, you need to know the times of day that you work best. So for me, for example, once I've done my morning routine, I'll get into three hours of work. Then I'll take a half an hour break. Then I'll do another two and a half hours of work. And then I might do some exercise. I like getting some exercise in in the late afternoon for a couple hours, which gives me some energy to come back for the evening. The reason I'm able to do that and to map that out is because I understand the things that I non-negotiably need to do to stay at a good focused energy level throughout the day. So these are more linked than I think the average person might take for granted. And why I really like that you're highlighting this, Brian, is because this is a really timely 
opportunity for us all to say, what are the pillars that I need to get in place personally that are going to allow me to thrive professionally? Because until you've got those locked in, then you're going to consistently be sabotaging yourself when you do show up to work because you haven't got the full boxes uh, checked, if you like, that allow you to operate for peak performance. In order for you to be healthy at work, you need to be healthy. You need to be taking care of yourself. That's your priority. That plays in the family environment too. It's like, you know, you've got to take care of your your kids, your, your spouse. Family's a priority above work, right? And so again, you yourself, if you're not healthy at the top of the pyramid, well, you're not going to be able to focus on your spouse. You're not going to be able to focus on your family or your work. And so this same mm. principle applies and there is like you need to be taking care of yourself. You need to be it's not selfish to take time for yourself to go work out. It's you're keeping yourself healthy and you're keeping enough margin in your life so that you can be present and meet the needs of those that you're responsible for. It's totally. a powerful thing that it took a long time for that to lock into my mind as it's okay for me to carve out some time for me because if I don't, everything else is going to fall apart. Let's go a level deeper there. Something that I found very interesting about you the last time that we spoke is how extroverted you are. You're constantly meeting people. You were at a dinner party last night. You seem to have a very vibrant social circle, yet you've been working remotely for over a decade at this point. So given that your team, you don't have that physical office to anchor in and to get that social fulfillment on a daily basis, how do you manage your own social needs while still working fully remotely? That's probably the one disconnect that's hard for me in the remote work environment. Everybody is different. I, I do believe there are personalities that should not be in a remote work environment. It's not healthy for them. And it is those uber extroverts. For me, my personality works. We, we have a whole disc formula that we use when, when we're meeting new people and on our team and helping them be successful in remote work and gauging how successful we think they'll be with that. For me, it works because I'm, I'm your driven, quick decision making, quick thinking entrepreneur that, um, just wants the ability to just let me run, let me go. Having the freedom and autonomy to be in my own environment, be in my own space, to tinker when I want to tinker on product development, creating things that wants to just go explore and do calls from wherever that trumps my need for social people interaction. So that that works for me, but I, I do think you really need to evaluate your own personality before you take a remote role because it may not work for you. It it's just the truth and it's one of my it's one of my concerns with as we're kind of re-entering normal day-to-day -day here post 2020 and soon post 2021, the tendency is going to be to say everybody stay at home. Well, it might not be good for everybody or It'll be this hybrid deal where you say, do what you want to do. And that's also a little dangerous to, to do what you want to do because it has the opportunity to re create resentment because some people that would want to work from home might not be able to because their home environments won't support that. That won't allow them to have a healthy work environment. Whereas somebody else that's, you know, their peer could just be working from home with no problem and then that 
creates some animosity between the two that shouldn't be there that holds back and affects their work and negatively impacts their culture and, and those sorts of things. So it's complicated. What are some of the traits that you look for in an ideal remote worker? We've talked about some of the personality types that might not gel, these kind of uber extroverted people. But on the on the flip side, what are the kind of really clear cut patterns you've seen of people who are very behaviorally optimized to spend time working remotely? Yeah, so the DISC is an acronym of D-I-S-C. The D represents how interested you are in making decisions. Um, the I represents how interested you are in being around people. It doesn't have to do with liking people. It has to do with being around people, how much you need to be around people. The S has to do with how steady you are. How well do you go with the flow? And the uh, C is really compliance. How detailed are you? What's really interesting is Mark and I, my brother, business partner, we talk a lot about how, you know, how do you make it work for over a decade with a 50 50 locked ownership with your brother? And it's like, well, we completely care about different things. So my D is very high. His is moderate. Um, my I is very high. His is very low. I'm interested in making decisions. He's good with as long as it makes sense. Um, I'm interested in being around people. He's happy kind of being in the room, getting things done. I'll roll with the punches and um, he likes kind of structure. So we're never like both on the open waves. Like one of us is anchoring the other one. His C is very high. Like he's perfectionist pattern level of interested in getting things done. Like give me a list to check off. My C is almost non-existent. Like don't, don't give me details to work through or you will burn me out instantly mm -hmm. and you'll find a different person in front of you. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so we completely balance each other out and, and that works great. And really I am not the ideal remote worker. I'm a good um, founder, leader, CEO type, high level, a remote person that has a lot of authority and autonomy and flexibility and freedom that works if you have my personality and you can have that level of freedom. The people who are get it done type people. So you need to be willing to make a decision. So that D, if you need to go to somebody to make a decision, you don't want to be the trigger puller. Well, remote work's not going to probably be for you because you're not going to always be in front of people. You need to be able to make your own decisions. You need to understand, you know, there's always a learning curve in any environment, but when you've climbed the learning curve and you understand the scope of what you're overseeing, you need to be willing to make a decision. If you're not, you're probably not good for remote work. The I for people, you can have like a non-existent I. I've got some on my team who are the sweetest, kindest, loving, friendly people. They love people. They just don't need to be around people. Those are the ideal people for remote work. Now, as your I gets higher, you will have a harder and harder time being in a remote work environment. So if you have a very high eye and you just need to be around people, you might need a roommate or you might remote work might not be good for you. The S, the, you know, go with the flow or roll with the punches. I think that can kind of work in any way for remote work. So that's not so hard. The C is if you have a low C like me and you're more antsy and you have trouble like kind of focusing down to-do lists and, and doing deep work and long work, 
well, remote work becomes harder for you um, because you need more creative outlets for that. And, they, and there may not be that in a, there may not be those opportunities in a remote work job, or you need to find the remote, the right remote work job that gives you the ability to kind of exercise that lower focus kind of state like I have. Um, if you're a high C and you've got a perfectionist pattern and you just want to get stuff done and just give me a check, a checklist to do, that remote work is for sure for you. Um, so that's kind of the quick high level of how those break down. And I like the analogy of the anchor that you use there, how you and your brother, one of you is balancing the other one out in whatever whatever medium it is that you're you're using. And as with anything with employees, it's important to have a balance. And a mistake that I've made is trying in the past to hire people who are like me when actually now I try and hire for differences, for people who complement my weaknesses or augment my strengths from the different way that they see the world that is kind of a yeah fundamental shift from me. Now, the last thing I'd love to touch base on today, this is a slightly different angle. It's still focused on remote work and it was something that really stuck with me the last time we spoke. We were talking about remote work and you said the big mistake that people make when they transition to remote work is to send internal emails. What is the problem with internal emails, Brian? Why should we be banning them from remote work culture? Okay, so we I built a SaaS platform. That's what we do. We run corporate perks for other companies. Um, our platform has a purpose. It makes running corporate perks and delivering corporate perks super efficient and easy and you can trust the where it is and what it's coming from. I mean, this has happened all, all over the place. Email is just your mailbox sitting at the uh, the front of your house, and you should treat it like that. But it's not the way we treat it. We treat email like it's the news, and you're watching it all the time for something new, something interesting, like a ticker. You're just staring at your email like it's the TV. It's like, no, it's the email is the mailbox in the front of the house. You should just check it every once in a while when you need to. So use email the way email is intended to be used. Now, email was one of the first communication mediums. So many of us who have been in the marketplace and uh, workplace for a couple decades are used to treating it more like watching the news. Like, what's the latest news? What's coming in? Come on, give me something. I um, mean, it's very addictive because of that. Um, and so it's hard to break that cycle. But email should be your mailbox. Um, your mailbox should be stuff that external people are sending you, like, you know, bills. But your customers, your suppliers, your people outside of your company should be using email to communicate with you. That is the way that they get in touch with you and you get back in touch with them. Chat, like Slack is what we use internally. Chatting is for quick communication. It's a private network and it should just be your team. You don't need to open that channel up externally. That's what your email is for. So it's just internal. It's for your team and your very close partners that you might be using. Um, like our the folks that we partner with, with some software development stuff, they have access to certain team members um, so we can work efficiently together. Chat is for quick questions, clarifying questions. 
and it's for building culture and community and so you know it's a good place to have we have terrible joke tuesday and everybody posts their terrible jokes you know it is the right place to do cat pictures and all these uh, celebrate birthdays and all these other things it's it's kind of a mm-hmm. leaving it's the water cooler at the workplace a task manager is where you assign to do's so if i need you to do something ben i should not send it to you through chat because it's just going to get buried and I'm going to lose it, which is the same reason why I shouldn't send it to you by email. It's just going to get buried and it's going to get lost. Email, if I want to send you something to do in an email, I'm going to invest a lot of time in typing the email and doing all the, putting all the details in there. And again, it's going to go to you and then you're going to have to convert the same thing into some place where you can manage it in the future. So that's two of you wasting time and resources to get that done. So If something needs to get done, you put it straight in the task manager. Again, in email, you're tempted to copy every single person in your company to send them that's involved in the project. Nobody really knows who's playing point on what piece of the task. There's no clarity in how to execute and get it done. The task manager lets you assign it to one person so they know this is my part and then break it into subtasks so every other person has something assigned to them. It's, it allows them to execute on the task and the strategy. Text message is another one that is uh, challenging. Just remember anybody that you give your phone number to has the ability to reach you at any time and disrupt your work life. And then social, social media from a, a work standpoint needs to be an output only. It's a place to get the word out there about what you're doing. It's a billboard. You should have a help desk that allows you to pull in your stuff. So it should be pulling in your social media messages and support stuff. So you're managing support through a help desk system, not doing that there. So just treat social media like a billboard. You shouldn't be using Facebook Messenger to ask questions to your team members during the day because you're both on Facebook. I don't care if you're on Facebook during the day, that's up to you because I'm measuring output and if you wanna keep your job, then you get done what I expect you to get done. It's not about that, but you shouldn't be using Facebook Messenger to do work communication because there's no paper trail, there's no record of it. It may be very disruptive for the other person because they may not wanna be on Facebook and you keep pinging them over there and bringing them back into that world. So social should just be a billboard in the work environment. Those are my rules of engagement for remote teams. I also have an impact plan that helps people create a social mission of their own and create an impact plan of their own. And I'll give out a phone number that you can text and get an auto reply back right away. That is my uh, work uh, text number. So you can text me there. And when I'm working, I will text you back and engage with you that way. And I find that to be a better way to engage with folks than social and email and all those things. Excellent. Well, those are some great, juicy, practical nuggets that we can dive into in improving our remote work. Let's hear it then, Brian. So if people want to keep up with you, they want to follow your journey. I know you've got some great resources for our listeners. What are the best ways for them to connect with you? Yeah, I'd love to dive into this more or hear. uh, I've written a number of articles kind of around these topics that you might find helpful to learn more on. Those articles are at brianroland.com. You can get the rules of engagement or my impact plan for free by texting the word impact or texting the word rules to area code. uh, Well, if you're out of country, plus one for the United States, then 615-802-2000. 
1-615-802-6853. And again, plus one, 615-802-6853. Text rules or text impact uh, for either of those. And happy to connect with anybody that wants to go deeper on all these things. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brian. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode and want more insights to help you get ahead personally and professionally, make sure to subscribe to stay up to date with our latest content. It makes a big difference in helping our content get discovered, and so I'd really appreciate it too. If you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, I'd love to hear them. You can drop us a comment on YouTube or message me directly on Twitter. My handle is at Ben Bradbury underscore. I'll see you next time.